0: Hey, everybody, welcome back to the podcast where I bring you the best and the brightest from the world of business, marketing, and entrepreneurship to help you harness your inner tenacity and drive your career forward. My guest today, Ashish Tashnawal, CEO and co-founder of Y Media Labs. And for today, we're going to call it YML. YML is an award-winning digital product and design agency that was founded in 2009, just as Apple was opening up the App Store. And at the time, Ashish and his co-founder saw an opportunity to create a future forward company that help brands win in a digital world. YML has worked with over 30 Fortune 500 clients, including Apple, Home Depot, a little company called Meta, and State Farm. And prior to starting YML, Ashish started out at Dell and eBay, where he worked as an engineer and a manager. And his focus on bringing Silicon Valley to the world began here, and he's been working with cutting-age brands and companies ever since. He's also an accomplished investor, with some of his key investments including People AI, Latch, Robinhood, Egghorns, and more. So let's get under the hood and scope out the why behind Why Media Labs. Let's do it, Ashish. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Adam. Thank you so much for joining me today. We had a, a very lively conversation about kids and COVID and this crazy world that we're living in. But we're going to save all that for another conversation. So. Um, you have a pretty fascinating story. So let's hit the rewind button, and I would love to talk about your journey. You know, from growing up uh, as a boy in India to migrating to the states and and coming to university here. What was that journey like? Did you always like from a little kid, you know, always said you wanted to come to the states, or you know, when you were growing up, did you have plans to stay in India your whole life? Yeah,
1: it's like uh, I I grew up in Kolkata, India, uh, probably one of the most populous uh cities in the country and um growing up you know it was it was a pretty happy go lucky childhood and i i also remember like um i came to us before i came to us for my undergrad and i was in new york i was in the bus and uh this was in the 90s i got my hand on a newspaper and i was I was reading what does an average engineer makes in America, <laughs> right? And it was like $57,000. And back then, and, that's a ton. And back then, like, given, you know, my background and, you know, always lived in India, I was like, wow, if you make $57,000, I'll, like, retire the same year <laughs> or something. And now, One and done. And, and, and that was obviously a big lightning moment. And then second was like... Also, I wanted to be in engineering where, you know, what's the place to be and if you want to make your uh, make a big name in tech and so on and so forth.
0: Interesting. So you came to visit and how old were you when you came to visit? Uh,
1: I was like, I think 16 years old. And even, I would say even before that, right? Like if you look at my upbringing, um, I would say the first 10, 12 years, um, uh, we, we used to live in a joint family. So right. the idea of a joint family is my dad um, lived with, you know, his brother and their family, right? And it was like a total of 15, 16 people in the same house. Oh, the yeah. And there was, there was one bathroom oh, amongst man. like 15 people.
0: Imagine um, that. I
1: remember like, <laughs> we would have like 15 minute slots in the morning. And if you miss your slot, like, you're man, screwed. life is hard. You're, pass. you're, li- you're
0: literally shit out of luck. Sorry. There's my dad. There's my dad joke for the day. I got my dad joke out of the way there, but let me, but let me ask you this. Like, what did, you know, looking back on it now, you know, you're, you're, you're in the States. It looks like you're in a much larger house than you grow up in, um, what, what did that teach you, right? Like living with 15 people deep in your family under one roof. Had to prepare you. See, for now. one
1: of the thing, like when I look back, obviously it sounds crazy, um, but when I was in the moment, I was not like, "Man, my life is miserable." No. I was actually enjoying it, and um, and you know, it was a lot about like uh, the, the the positive side was having fun, you know, with my cousins, and it was a big You're family, tight. and like I was never bored, and you know, constantly entertained, and like. That's what, you know, I guess the focus was back then. And and it was, I think the key thing when I look back was even in that situation, I never felt like my upbringing was miserable or anything.
0: Yeah. I mean, it wasn't because you, you didn't, you also didn't know any better and you were happy. You were, you were happy. It wasn't like you were miserable. You were in a good situation there. So let's talk about it, right? Like, and, and I'm a recruiter by trade, so I work with a lot. Well, in the past, I've worked with a lot of, um, you know, people coming from overseas with visas and everything, but hit the rewind button. And, and obviously transferring over to the States is incredibly difficult in different levels and different, um, you know, roadblocks, but talk to us a little bit about that experience. Was it an easy one for you? And, and you came over to come to Purdue, correct? So yes. a student visa, how was that process?
1: Yeah, I mean, that process was actually pretty challenging where, um, you know, if you come to U.S. for your undergrad, especially if you come from India, the the fees, number one, you don't get any financial aid and um, the scholarships are very minimal, especially in the undergraduate uh, space. And um, I remember, like, for me, coming to U.S. was, it was a stroke of luck more than anything else. How like so? You know because like my dad and and the whole family they were not sure there was like a period a window of two weeks where you know one day I was like I was going, and the other day I wasn't going, mm-hmm. obviously, you know, I wanted to go, but you know it was not just my decision why um,
0: what what was the hesitation from your parents? I mean, didn't they want to see you flourish and grow and 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 you know expand past your boundaries, your geographical boundaries I think
1: were Yeah, there were two hesitation. Number one, it was a lot of money. Um, You know, it was for four years. Mm. And then when you compare that with like Indian education, it's like, you know, zero to 100 kind of comparison, right? And the second was like, they were not sure if I am ready yet. You know, they were like, why don't you go for your master's? Maybe this... My mom was definitely a lot more certain than others, but... You know, that was the talk. And you
0: wanted it. to just jump right in. So, so, so you've already, Whoa. so you already been to the States. You fly in. I assume you flew into probably JFK and then you took another flight over. Chicago. To Chicago. But Full you've hair. been, you know, you've been to, yeah, cause you're right over there and you're in the States. What was the first real culture shock going to university, right? I mean, listen, I, I should have asked this, like coming to New York when you were 16, right? And you're on a New York City transit bus. But what was that first cultural shock, you know, coming to university in the States with, um, you know, it's a different country, different folks around you.
1: I think the biggest culture shock was um I never was in this environment, like I have never I never saw snow before in my life.
0: We take that for granted.
1: And I landed at Purdue and uh the first semester was so rough for me. Um, like I took on like unnecessary too much uh course load and then getting cu- accustomed with the culture mm-hmm. Um, and before coming to America, I never cooked in my life and, you know, getting used to all of it. Um, it was very challenging. In fact, like I remember like after Thanksgiving, it was so cold in purdue that was the first time i experienced what like negative 22 degrees with the wind chill chicago's arctic there's no way i can stay here for the next four years
0: (laughs) why didn't i choose a southern school or california school right it's funny i went i went to school up in buffalo and i'm from new york so i'm used to cold weather in the seasons but until you're in that belt with the great lakes because we were on one of the great lakes up there you have no idea what what that whiteout conditions are and what real cold is like and it goes through your bones Right, and especially a kid growing up in a warmer climate. Right, your bones weren't used to that.
1: Yeah. What was a uh, wind chill is crushing. man. What
0: was your first? What was, what was your favorite U.S. you know American meal? Like you're like, oh my god! I mean, God, what my I was missing this my entire life. You know, I loved
1: pancakes and waffles. It's like I had that for the first month or so. I had that for my uh breakfast i had that for my dinner you know and then of, of course after like few days i got sick of it but That's, it was amazing i, I mean i have that. a very big sweet tooth uh,
0: all right so so let's get into it so, so you graduate purdue and what was the first stop was that dell
1: yes had, Dell was my first job right was it right out was, it, of was it
0: your target how did you land there
1: so you know, I was uh, I was actually wanted to move to Silicon Valley right right out of college. I couldn't get in. Well, you wanted to warm um, up,
0: also. I mean, it's not much warmer, but it's a,
1: <laughs> and you heard
0: the pan the pancakes on the is, West Coast like, are significantly better. Those West Coast pancakes
1: <laughs> that 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 is so true. Actually, like um, I loved my time in Austin. In fact, Austin is the perfect Austin city. Awesome. When you want to transition from college to real life.
0: It has a little bit of a and, college feel to it in a lot of ways, right? Go down to South yep. Congress, right? I mean, they got some good stuff going on over there.
1: That's right. Sixth Street and, uh, you know, all the fun. So uh, I got my first job as an engineer in Dell Computers. I was in the storage and servers department writing. Pre-cloud. You know, huh? Pre-cloud. Yes, <laughs> this was pre-cloud. Yes. And... uh you know, working on firmware and working on uh, a lot of like application,
0: uh, server application stuff. Interesting. Right. So then Dell, Dell, what was what was like a key learning, you know, at Dell, you know, your first real job in the real world, big giant company, you know, one of the big boys, Dell, what was something maybe you had a preconception of a preconceived notion of that that got proven wrong in the workplace, something that you learned the hard way?
1: Yeah, I think one of the thing for me was that I wanted to, you know, progress fast. And I remember, like, um, I was working on a product, which was kind of end of life. So, you know, this was never talked about in any all hands. And it was nobody kind of like ever cared about this. And I was like, man, I'm kind of working on the wrong stuff here. So I wanted to get on the product, which was cutting edge. Of course. And you know, how right. can I, and I, and I, and I didn't have any problem, like putting in 70, 80 hours. In fact, I was itching to do that. If I could see like, you know, I'm making a difference. Of course.
0: Interesting. Um, what was the move over to eBay? Like, was that, were you poached by them? Were you, were you looking to go over there? Cause you weren't getting something at Dell. You weren't working on those high profile cutting edge projects.
1: Yeah. So my number one objective when I was working at Dell was how can I, how how can I move to the Silicon Valley? I remember like talking about uh, learning about YouTube in 2005 Mm -hmm. was probably like the biggest acquisition ever back then. Right. Like 1.6 billion by Google. Like everyone now now they spend,
0: "Ah." now they spend that on a, on on an app that's two months old. It's crazy.
1: (laughs) It's insane, man. And, uh, I was like, I used to listen to Reed Hoffman. I used to listen to, you know, all these entrepreneurs uh, of how did they make it, how did they start, all that stuff. And I was like, I don't care what job I get, but I have to be in Silicon Valley yeah. because that's how I can enhance my chance of starting a company someday.
0: You know, it's really interesting. Let's let, let's kind of ruminate on that for a little bit. The idea of being where the action is, right, of being where it is. And, and that was I, I still think it rings true now, but you know what we learned in the pandemic in the last years is like you could kind of be and work anywhere. Do you still kind of have that same thought? Because I still believe that, hey, listen, the pandemic came, but you need to be where you are. For example, if you really want to be deep in the crypto Web3 space, Miami's the spot right now. You know what I'm saying? Like to physically be there. Um, what are your thoughts on that out of curiosity?
1: Yeah, you know, uh, I remember... Um I was, um, you know, I was in an event like last year, someone asked me, hey, how do you enhance luck? I was talking about like luck was a big part of, you know, my journey. And I had to think about that. And I would say the number one reason how you can enhance luck is, you know, luck is directly proportional to the kind of people you meet. And, you know, when you talk about coming to Silicon Valley, you're, You are enhancing your chance of serendipity, like running into people who can change, you know, the course of your life. And that's what happened with me, you know, early on. And, and, and that's what happens. Like, if you want to make a mark in, in a certain category, then you have to surround yourself, people who are like really good, you know, in that subject.
0: That's such a good point too. And I don't want, I don't want people to lose track of this as we're kind of heading down this path of work from anywhere be anywhere if you're passionate if you're passionate about something professionally and personally put yourself where the action is surround that's great advice actually like be where the action is be where those people are you have more of a chance i mean let's just think about it logically you could literally be getting lunch in a in a coffee shop and you're surrounded by 10 people who are key influencers and decision makers in your industry and a casual conversation, you have a better chance of a casual conversation turning into something than not, and you're actually manipulating the luck. No, I, I love it. So let me ask you this: When did you have the first bug, the first itch, to start your own business? When? When it, was it? When you were at eBay? Like, when did you say, you know what, I have an idea, um, or you know what, I'm t- I'm done working for other people. It's time for me to go out on my own.
1: I think the first time was at Dell. Um, at Dell, we tried to, like Sumit, who's my co-founder at YML, we tried to do a, a deal search engine. Um, we launched it, but it never took off. And then you know we tried another venture, it never worked. YML was kind of our third shot.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, so, you know, we tried a bunch of things, but YML was kind of the third experiment which
0: worked. Interesting. So let's talk about your, your co-founder cement and believe correct me if I'm wrong. You actually grew up two miles away from each other in Kolkata?
1: Yes. It's coincidence. It's and you met at Purdue,
0: right? So it's pure coincidence.
1: Absolutely. Did you know him growing was, up? Did you
0: know him growing up or you didn't know him until you got to
1: I, I did not know him growing up. In fact, the first time I met him was at Purdue. Um, despite like living two miles away from each other for 12 or like 18 years, you know? Um, so yeah.
0: What was the process like? Were you friends first or were you looking for a co-founder?
1: Definitely friends first, because I remember like I met him, uh, in, in the freshman year, uh, math class in freshman year. And, you know, it's like he, he was from Kolkata. I was from the Kolkata. And we were like, wow, can't believe so a whole lot of people actually go from Kolkata to US for undergrad. So it was kind of like surprising that we met uh in, in college. And you know, obviously back then I was not thinking of starting a company, but no. just trying to excel in math, I guess. No, so
0: so how did that decision come when it was time to start a company? Was he the logical choice because of your closeness of culture and where he grew up or were there other qualities and traits that he had that make him a desirable co-founder? Or so a mix?
1: Something, something very interesting happened in Austin, by the way. Oh, um, What happens in Austin stays at,
0: in Austin. We don't always talk about what happens in Austin, awesome. man.
1: So we interned together at Dell Computers yeah. and then we got full-time job uh, in Dell right after graduation. And then, you know, Sumit moved out to Austin first. And I moved to Austin um, as well. But he didn't know that I was coming to Austin. Mm. And I called him up after I was in Austin. I was like, hey, Sumit, I'm in Austin. Um, You want to grab dinner or something? He's like, oh, yeah, where are you staying? I'm like, Warner Ranch. Uh, Oh, I am also in Warner Ranch. Which apartment? I talk about Uh, the same apartment. No way. And and then, you know, he, he asked me, Ashish, what's your apartment number? I'm like 933. He's like, just step out of your apartment no we both step out of our apartment and we share the common <laughs> wall and and out of like 900 apartments in that apartment, the entire complex yes
0: that is a brilliant story i love it so let's go to the early days you know those those days of brick by brick you know building it together what were some of those early sacrifices that you you had to make I think it's important think to share these stories. One of, the,
1: one, of one of the biggest mm-hmm. challenges we faced when you start a company in March of 2009 that's like at the bottom of the the last financial meltdown mm-hmm. you you don't have a whole lot of help you know obviously investors are super skeptical to invest in anything and then, you know, we didn't have any great background in entrepreneurship or like our track record didn't speak for our, you know, great success or anything. So we had like 21 rejections mm. and and we were like, after like a couple of years, we were like, fuck it, man. Mm-hmm. Like, we just need to bootstrap it. You know, we need to figure out how we can do things. Um, so... We we started like hiring, uh, you know, in India as well back then, just to make sure we can like the the money can pay for the whole operation. Of course, it's So he it moved himself to India, and then you know we were like gradually bootstrapping it, and and in fact, like it took us literally like close to four years to. Cross a million dollars in revenue. Right. So it's
0: not an overnight success, is, is, what, is what everybody sees out there by these unicorns that are just getting these insane evaluations. I mean, those only represent, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm going to make a stat up here, like the smallest 0.001% of all startups out there, right? You're not just going yeah. to crush it. You're not going to be the unicorn um, out there. So let's talk about getting an email from Steve Jobs. First and foremost, I need to ask you: like, is his email address literally like Steve S or Steve at Apple or S Jobs? Like, was that literally his email address, or did he have some crazy yeah, it, encoded secret email address? No,
1: you would be surprised that like Steve Jobs used to download almost pretty much like almost all the apps because apps were of not course. that much right in two thousand eight nine. It was, it was a new yeah, thing. it was early days, and, and when we launched right. like. You know, one of these early apps, we partnered with the Montessori school who had all the content and the, you know, uh, understanding of what is required for kids. And we brought this to iPad. And this was the first time through touch kids can learn. Yeah. Right. And it's very interactive. Like the iPad is talking back to the kid, yep. giving instruction. I remember those. And And, you know, it was... It was a very clean app and we got this email out of nowhere. I love what you're doing. Let me know how I can help. Best, Steve. And obviously when we got the email, we were like, there's no way, you know, someone is a joke kind of playing around with us, yeah. you know? And then we kind of responded back that, hey, we are getting a lot of backlash from the Montessori community, um, that like people feel Why? that this this can hurt. Huh? The kids, because it's it's you know so much it's, screen time it's electronic and, and it's yeah. against the Montessori school of thinking and all that. And his response was, "Keep doing what you are doing. You'll prove the critics wrong." And obviously, that was very inspiring. In I was the, about to say, in the middle of in the middle of like so many investor rejection and so on, and so forth.
0: So, so let me ask you this: Do you have that letter like printed out in a frame? <laughs> I have that letter, absolutely, man. I mean, that's inspiring, man. I I love it, right? Because they're are still regular people, and this is their business, and they're still engaging. Now that 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 that's a great one, man. So, what you know, you mentioned this early app. What was the first big project that really changed the trajectory of YML and pushed it to the next level? How did that happen?
1: See, I would say that um, very early on, uh, the first business which we got was. Uh, from Safeway, mm-hmm. and I don't know if you have you been to Safeway.
0: I live in New York. We don't really have a Safeway. Okay, so probably you've not. I'm been familiar to with Safeway, it. Yeah, I know what it is. But for those, yeah, not, the biggest, for those like grocery, right? For those not familiar, it's a giant grocery train, right? Yeah, it's a especially
1: on the West Coast, right? And when you enter, like you see a whole rack of gift cards, and their idea was, how can we bring gift cards on the phone? on demand so that when you are on your way to a birthday party you can you know while you're in the car you can buy the gift card oh. and and that was kind of like our first real project uh we did bunch of like small things back then but that was kind of the first one and then and then i would say the biggest first win was and that came came few years into yml was like
0: working with paypal mm. and what was that project well
1: paypal obviously was a was a giant is a giant in the whole fintech world of course and they started in the web world and the 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 trajectory of iphone uh progress was so fast that you know facebook came out like oh facebook is no longer a web company it's a mobile mm-hmm. first company and paypal was like okay you know we need to do the same and we we need to um, uh, make sure that our mobile roadmap is very strong, app is very strong. And because uh, iPhone technology and design was so unique, right? Like in that early days, very few people actually knew, you know, how to build an app on iPhone and and what does an iPhone app design look like. Yeah, it was like. the Uncharted Waters. It was, it was brand new. Exactly. It's like now in the so, metaverse.
0: Yep. Mm-hmm.
1: Yep. and And hence... We, um that was kind of our big project, like launching that, you know, big first uh, PayPal app. I love it. Hey,
0: everybody. First, I'd like to thank you all for spending time with me and my guest on the podcast. This show was my canvas to showcase amazing people from the world of recruiting, entrepreneurship and leadership and unpack their career journeys for everyone to learn from. But this show is also a business generator for me, as well as creating thought leadership and endless amazing content. And I've taken what I've learned in the past three years and over 200 recorded and 100 live shows and distilled it down into a digital playbook that I call The Pause Course. Now you could learn how I build, manage, and produce The podcast, and use it to drive real business development and relationships. Today, I'm sharing all of my secrets behind The podcast, and you can get it all at ThePauseCourse.com. This course is for anyone, whether you're starting out or an advanced podcaster using it for B2B, B2C. It's filled with all of my insights, learnings, tips, tricks, and templates. So get it now at thePozCourse.com and learn all my secrets. Thanks. So, quick side question here, and I and I, I wanted to get to this later on, but what is like, you know, your your kind of hot take on you know, the the Web3, blockchain, crypto, NFT space. Is this a fad or is this the next generation? I mean, is this where we were in 1999 when people were saying the internet was a fad? Is this like, hey, get on with the program. The world is changing. Just take a look at what the kids are playing and stop being the old man at the room saying, why the hell are you spending $3 million on a JPEG of an ape?
1: <laughs> See, here's the thing, Adam. This is obviously highly controversial. And here's my take on it. It is absolutely... Early days for it, but at the same time, you know, I never predicted that uh, kids would be spending close to not just kids, but people would be spending close to forty billion dollars today on virtual goods. Yes, I have personally spent zero dollars, you know, on virtual. What about goods. your
0: kids? Your kids aren't playing Roblox or any of the other things. And and here's the thing: my eight-year-old.
1: If he had disposable income, he would like spend all his money on like virtual goods. Like he plays this game, Brawl Stars, yep. and and you know, in three months, if I like buy him that four ninety nine dollars special sword, he is so thrilled. A pig and I can see, <laughs> and I can see like this is the future, right? Today it's happening. Now, if you fast forward twenty years from now, ten years from now, right? Especially when your online presence surpasses your physical world presence in the meta world. Today, you know, it's like what we wear and like the shoes we wear or the shirt we wear, the, you know, glasses we have, it is a slight part of our identity. You know, we are definitely making a statement with that. But in the online world, it would be, you know, the, 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 online identity we have and the stuff we own, right? Like if we have this special hat or special sword or something environment friendly, that shows what we stand for. Because in that world, you know, we are not like necessarily looking at your shirt or shoes or your glasses. So in that case, you know, it can be, I can see like this can be a pretty big thing when you know, NFT um, can be a part of like uh, people's identity.
0: Yeah, that's a a tremendous take there. So let's talk about the current state of your company. How many full-time employees do you have, may I ask? Yeah, we are close to 550 people. Wow. So this is is a sizable organization. And correct me if I'm wrong too, you know, you started to think about DE&I pretty early on being a, a minority founder and having faced, you know, a lot of discrimination regarding certain opportunities in your life. What is your position in, within your current company? When you launched your company, what was what was that mission to say? You know what, we're gonna put you know true diversity and inclusion in the forefront in all of our hiring practices.
1: So to be honest, Adam, early on when I started YML, I didn't realize how big this uh, the the you know significance of DEni is. Like I was like just focus on hiring, build great products, right, build the company, and that's all right. Like. And I remember around 2013, 14, um, I was called out, you know, in 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 all hands, um, Ashish. If you look around the room here, like there are maybe forty people in the room. And do you wanna guess how many women were there in the room?
0: Like two, one, one. Yeah. That's right? And I was like, wow, Shit. this is this is not good. but it wasn't I intentional mean, right like or or was that a bias or was that a function of women in tech at the time a lack of women in tech i think
1: it was it was a little bit all of the above but it was i i'm going to like blame myself more than anyone that i didn't have that awareness and then you know after that i we worked for 2 3 years to change that and and our whole strategy was how can we hire women in the leadership in the more senior right. position so that, you know, the whole company is kind of represented of what our leadership represents. Right.
0: But it wasn't just hiring women for the sake of women to check a box. I mean, you still needed to ensure that they were skilled, experienced, that they would be a good addition to the culture of the company. And how would you go about doing that? I mean, you growing as a leader. Talk a little bit about your um, story of growing as a, as a leader and being able to interview and build culture and affect change.
1: I think when it comes to like D&I particularly it was a lot about hey let's make sure this is part of our company goal the way you would track revenue the way the way you would track customer satisfaction you're tracking you know how many what is the percentage of women you know and 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 I made that as a goal of the leadership team and that's when I think we did well and today it's like close to 40% of YML is women. That's
0: fantastic. So let's talk about how you interview, and I love to give a little bit of inside baseball, pull back the curtain here. So I assume when someone gets to you at this stage, you have a 500-person company, that they've at least been vetted from a skill and experience perspective. Um, But what are some of your go-to questions to really try to suss out, you know, is this person going to be good for the company? Do do I feel like they're a good human being? What what type of questions do you ask? Yeah, one of the big
1: things, Adam, for me is that, I want to look at the track record and I want to see um, how they have dealt with very, very difficult situation. And the way I look at it is like someone, you know, who has not been at a company more than one, one and a half year, it tells me over, let's say over a 10 year period or 15 year period, right? It tells me that whenever like there is probably a very difficult situation, they want to bail out and they want to jump onto the next you know job and now of course job market is so hot that it's not that hard to find a job right and what i look for especially for senior roles is that what can they tell me a story where they joined the company where the company was like let's say 50 people but when they left it was 500 or 1000 and they can track a story of how they have helped you know, build a company. And in the process, obviously elevated their career as well. And if I can, you know, believe that story, then that's, that's a very strong tell, in my opinion.
0: What's a red flag
1: question that you ask? A lot of times the red flag question is in the details, right? Like if someone says, hey, I've done that, Then I would get into, oh, how did you do it? Like, tell me the details. And if they are still keeping things at a very high level, you know, they're trying to, you know, come up with things on the fly rather than tell you the truth. Or
0: maybe they didn't do all the work that they're claiming to do. That's an interesting one. So let's talk about the last couple of years. Um, What percentage, like prior to the pandemic, you know, prior to March, uh, February 2020, how much of your company was on site versus, you know, people working remotely around the country and the world? So
1: pre-pandemic, I would say like 95% of the team were on site and we were like, we had four to five offices. Wow.
0: So how did, how did this, let's go back to those early days of the pandemic. What was that, that first moment you're like, shit, this is for real. We got to, we got to figure this out and we got to get people, you know, was a company set up to easily transition to fully remote? Oh
1: man, it was, I remember like, uh, it was like March first week or something. We were like, you know, I you're on the I West Coast. The you e got team. hit first.
0: You got hit first. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I called the E-team. I was like, look, this thing can get out of control. We need to do a pilot. Okay. Even though like nobody, and, and that day it was not like, you know, 10 companies announced we are going remote or something. We were like, we should be prepared. Let's just in the next 24 hours, make sure that we have all the systems ready so that we can communicate remotely if we don't let's just do a pilot for one week and see how it goes and then we did that pilot and that pilot has been going on even now so it's like now after that moment we have been remote first and and i would say on the on the business front the the first 6 weeks to 8 weeks were extremely painful and challenging mm-hmm. because you know every every client of ours was also in a big shock right. because they didn't know what they were to going expect.
0: through it everybody was
1: and depending on the nature of your business let's say if you're in restaurant business literally overnight your revenue has dropped by 90% and when that happens like it, it is a sign of exi- existential crisis and at that point there, you are not like thinking about digital design or like experience. You are like thinking of like making Survival. sure your lights are on.
0: Yeah, we're going to food. And, and, and that, you
1: know, especially in travel and restaurant and, you know, that category got hit pretty badly. And we had a few clients there. So, you know, they kind of like, we need to pause everything overnight. And, and, I w- and you know, all these calls kind of came in a two to three day window and i was kind of projecting that that if this continues like in the next 2 weeks we may not have like any business you know if That's this scary. is what scary this is reality
0: it was it was literally out of a movie right it was literally out of like one of those crazy matthew mcconaughey movies matthew mcconaughey is going to come save the world it's a virus it was like that so how did, it how, did, was like how it, did you keep how did you keep the, the 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 company together how did you keep the sense of culture and mission and purpose remotely right like when we go from We take it for granted, right? We take it from like, we see each other walking down the hallway. We're able to pull somebody into a quick meeting, pull them into a hallway and have a conversation with them. That's part of the culture. How did you keep that vibe alive to really keep YML? Like, how'd you keep it going?
1: I think there was also a big panic amongst the team. What's gonna happen to them? Like, Mm -hmm. obviously people were scared of, and also, you know, the first six months, I think there were a lot of news of layoffs and this and that. So um, people were scared of like what's going to happen to their job. We called an all hands probably two weeks into the pandemic. I uh, communicated like what is happening. The clients who paused. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also communicated this is a rough time, and you know at the same time I also communicated that look we are not like laying off anyone right now. The next eight weeks we are going to just you know get closer to the client make sure we can help them because in pandemic fortunately the kind of business we offer helps in social of you know, distancing yeah you know you can order things online on your phone you know you can experience whatever you have to experience through you know digital means which is what was needed in pandemic and what we saw after 8 weeks Clients literally double down on all their, you know, digital initiatives. Oh, I know it.
0: I recruited in the digital marketing space. I saw it. My business flourished during the second half of the of the major part of the pandemic.
1: Exactly. So, you know, and then um we were like, absolutely, we are we are not just lifting our hiring freeze, but we are like going all out, you know. Uh the I, I remember the Q4 of twenty twenty. And um it it ended up being a pretty massive year this that year and then last year again
0: yeah that was that was a big one i remember that so so hopefully hopefully we're recording this uh, mid-february 2022 and hopefully that this podcast stands up to the test of time but hopefully we're, we're on our way out of this i think we are i'm very optimistic about it um for you and your company as a leader what is the biggest challenge ahead of you as you continue to grow and expand
1: i think one of the biggest challenges like how do you make sure that you can keep Uh, you know, a remote first culture and at the same time be connected. Um, I feel there is a big challenge around when you don't meet people in person, you know, there is the Zoom meetings by nature are transactional. You don't do like Zoom meetings it, just to hang out. No. I wish you know, because that, that they that had that idea serum. at the beginning. Right in
0: the beginning, they're like, hey, let's just zoom each other. And I even saw some companies, I did mean to interrupt you. Some companies like, why don't we just have the zoom on while we're working throughout the day? I'm like, screw that shit. I don't want to look, you yeah. know, like I don't need you like walking to me like I'm, you know, fixing myself and picking my nose and everything. Get away from me. See me walking away to the I bathroom totally in my shorts. Come on.
1: <laughs> I totally agree with that. <laughs> Flushing the toilet, say, right?
0: You don't need to hear that in the background.
1: Depending on you know, what your personal situation is, I think people are going through different, you know, life events, right? And and if, and I think as a company, we have to be very empathetic to everyone's situation. Exactly. And, you know, we are also making sure that we are meeting people, we are creating those moments where teams are coming together in person. And they're not just like, for months and months, just zooming in and out, you know, they are, they, they are meeting the clients in person, Good. they are coming together, brainstorming, you know, all those things we, we can have in person doing offsites. So things like that, that has been pretty big,
0: Wait, so you are getting people back. And I think that's a huge point too. is, is creating an environment where people feel safe. And those people that don't feel safe, for whatever reasons, and you have to respect and I love that you're saying that as a leader, that there's not one solution for everybody right? It's not black and white. There's a lot of gray. So we have the office open. If you want to come in, come in. We're facilitating meetups. We're facilitating and encouraging, you know, client travel if they're open to it, but also being caring and empathetic to those who may not and not judging them or holding it against them. Have you found any performance related issues to people that are not open to returning to being together?
1: I think more than performance-related... The performance-related issue stems from uh, psychological change. You know, it's like people who are lonely and if they're going through tough life events... You don't know what's happening in their house. Obviously, there will be performance impact. But I don't think it's because they're remote. It's just because... Some things are changing personally, like even in the in-person world, right? Like if you go through a personal event, it is going to impact your
0: performance. Yeah, it's interesting. So that's the same thing. Yeah, I mean, we think about it. I think that there's been a lot of blanket statements out there about how work from home, work from anywhere is the future. But I think that's a little selfish because I think there's a lot of people out there that don't have great work from home setups. Maybe they have, you know, their single parent with four little screaming kids running around the house and going to an office with their escape to work and be productive. And now now they're stuck with their kids. That's not productive. Or maybe they live in a rural area where they don't have great internet connection. And it's a major pain in the ass for them. These are things that we, we just assume as a white collar privilege. I, I get that said. I, abso-
1: I absolutely agree with that. In fact, we leaned in more, you know, for mothers at YML who have small kids on how we can help. You know, how do we make sure that you know, if if they have kids um, during meetings, it's fine. You know, yeah. how can we be flexible with them? You know, and, and things have been great. Like we actually pride ourselves that like YML is the place to be if you're, a, you know, you have young young kids. I love it.
0: That's, that's huge. I mean, that's, that's what it's all about. So let, let's bring it home here. Um, what does the word authentic mean to you? Well, uh, authentic means, that's a great question, is...
1: When you think something, and that's what you say,
0: and then that's what you do. And if you can align all the three, that's authentic. Mean what you say and say what you mean. And I love that. That's a good one. What is the single greatest piece of advice that you've ever received, not from Steve Jobs, that you take action on every single day? Um,
1: I think you know this was uh, i'm a big fan of charlie munger uh, he he's he's the business partner of warren buffett and he has like dropped a lot of like life wisdom um, and one of the thing he says that and he's like 96 years old and you know super wise guy and one of the thing he says that you know at the end of the day you're going to des- you're going to get what you deserve and you ha- every day in the morning, you have to slug it out and you have to make small progress. And and you know, after a few years, you get to see the real result. And that has been very inspiring for me. And and you know, if you look at this is my 13th year running YML, you know, it's like the definition of long-term thinking. Love it.
0: Long term thinking. I mean, that is something. I mean, we could spend a whole other podcast talking about that. And you know, I see this every day. I'm a recruiter, so I'm talking to candidates at every different level of seniority. And there's so many that are so short term. They're transactional, and they're going from job to job just to make more money and get a title. Where there's nothing inherently wrong with that. I always say, listen, stick it out a little bit longer. Like, dig your feet in. You're only getting started there. And I I think that needs to change. So, Ashish, last but not least, right? You think about you know the 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 tough times. You think about that journey coming over to the state. And acclimating to a new country, a new culture, and everything, working your way up through a founder, you know, you needed to have a compass. You needed to have your sights set on something to pull you in the right direction. And on the flip side, sitting at our conversation now, thirteen years building an incredible company, five hundred plus folks there, building a fantastic culture. What keeps you in focus? What is your guiding light? What is your compass, Ashish? What is your north star in life?
1: I would say today, you know, it's a lot about how can I build a legacy. And, you know, when you think of that, you're thinking beyond yourself, you're thinking, you know, way out in the future, which means how can you take some bets where the chance of success is probably less than 5%, but you're still going for it. Because if you're successful, you know, that can be world changing.
0: That's big. And I love that you left it with legacy because I think that's what it's all about. And I talk about this all the time. What is your legacy? And, and for me, it's leaving this world a better place than I found it with my kids and my company and all the good that I leave there. Ashish, uh, thank you so much for joining me. I want everyone to check out yml.co, but where can folks find you directly and connect with you best? Uh, I'm on Twitter. I'm on LinkedIn. Yeah. That's the best. That is the best. So hang with me one moment here, dude. I appreciate it. This was a great chat. And anyone out there, please, like if you really love this conversation, please sure to share it, leave a comment, connect. It goes a long way. And hey, guess what? If you have any questions, email me, adam at nhptalentgroup.com. I want to open up the channels there. Feel free to reach out to me. I could connect you directly. Remember, find out more, everything podcast related at thepodcast.com. Follow us on other social media channels. Remember, take care of each other. Look out for one another and catch us next week for another great episode of the podcast. Take care, everybody.
1: Wisdom is forever, but for us, it's time to go. Thank you for joining us.